0: Leave be seated. Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. Chapter one. Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> when I was a teenager, I did some work for the University of Kentucky. My mother was over conferences and institutes, and uh, we put on conferences and institutes all over the state. And she incorporated me in helping run them. I was partly a director and partly a gopher. Uh, but that was a that was a time of life that lasted for a couple of years. And during that time, uh, we had a guy who would speak at a number of those conferences by the name of Bill Parker. Bill was an interesting guy. He had been born a poor black child on the wrong side of the track in Paducah. He had been born with absolutely no advantage whatsoever. Um, he came from illiterate parents. There was nothing that would say Bill would ever go anywhere, but he had, and he did. He ended up being a big muckety-muck at UK. I don't remember what his, his position was, but he was highly educated, Extremely good as a speaker. We had him talk several times and uh, Bill incorporated his background into his presentations. He was a uh, motivational speaker and he wanted to tell folk, you know, if if I can claw my way out of poverty like that and become me, Bill Parker, there's really nothing you can't do. That's the basics of his message. But one of the things that he included often when he talked about his background was what his mother used to tell him. Now, I'm pretty sure Bill wasn't a Christian. I don't know, but it didn't come across that he was. He was very, very proud of being a self-made man, and he would apply this comment to himself. I don't think his mother meant it that way. His mother taught him... Bill, before you take on the world or do anything, you need to remember who you are and whose you are. Now, it's not from Bill Parker only that I've ever heard that phrase. I've heard it other places. But his mother really drummed that into him, and he interpreted it as, uh, I'm Bill Parker, I have a lot of gifts, and I'm from my family, and I'm going to do well. But I think that his mother meant, Bill, remember who you are. You are a child under God. And remember whose you are. You belong to the Lord. In that particular kind of scenario, there is nothing that you can't do. And so uh, that's what I took from Bill when he was describing that. And. Uh, it's a pretty solid bit of advice if you happen to belong to the Lord. If you belong to the Lord, then before you take on the world or do anything, it's only natural and appropriate that you would think to yourself, who am I and to whom do I belong? It's significant information. And it's exactly what the apostle begins first Thessalonians with. As I told you in the introductory articles last Lord's Day, uh, the Church of Thessalonica is as sinful as any other New Testament church, and there's going to be sinful issues that the Apostle has to deal with because that's how you get an Apostle letter. If you're doing great, the Apostle doesn't write you anything. But the Apostle doesn't start with that. Rather, in Chapter 1, he reminds them who they are, and whose they are, to whom they belong. There is a Hebrew pattern of poetry. I don't know if you noticed it in your Bibles, but it's called a chiasm. And what that means is Hebrew poetry will oftentimes give point A and then it will give point B, and then it will give point C, and then it will give point B again in different words, and it will give point A again in different words, so that there's kind of an X of ideas. The the significant being in the middle, but the top and bottom being what brackets everything and giving it its form and shape. Paul begins his discussion with the Thessalonians in a very chiastic way. In verse 2 and 3 and 9 and 10, Paul gives them the same three points twice. And what he is doing is he is aligning their way of thinking concerning the past, (laughs) the present, and the future. In verse 2 and 3, he says... We, thank, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Down in verse 9 and 10, he says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols. Your work of faith... Your turning to God from idols seems to be the same point. Uh, in the Greek, turning to God is in that verb tense that means a one-time action. It's not a continuing thing. It's a crossing of the Rubicon. Paul reminds them faith has done something for you. God has given you faith. It is a supernatural gift. Human beings can't have the kind of faith that's being talked about here unless God gives it to them. Faith has come into your life, and faith has done a work. You are not who you used to be because faith has taken hold of you. You have crossed a a barrier. You have, have gone from one point to another. Well, what have you done? Well, you have turned to God from idols. That is, in your past, you were idolaters, but you are no longer idolaters. You have forsaken your idols, and you have turned to the living God, the real God, the God who is alive. There is only one. There is only one living God. You have turned away from all human conceptions of God, which are idols, and you have have become something totally different. A, a transformation has happened in your life. That is the past. In verse 2 and 3, Paul says, he remembers, quote, their labor of love, which is in a verb tense that talks about a continual action, something that's always going on. In 9 and 10, he says, you have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Again, a continual action. Having spoken of the past where something has happened to them, he now speaks about why they're still here. Why did they turn to God? Was there a purpose for this turning? Well, the answer is yes. They have turned from servitude to idols to live a life of servitude to God. They are slaves of God where they had been slaves of idols. As you know, we live in a culture which views slavery as the utmost evil. There is nothing worse than slavery. No sin is worse than slavery. It is bad, bad, bad. Don't you remember the American Civil War? It's terrible. The Bible doesn't actually have that view. The Bible has slavery as its penal system, uh, and it's actually much more positive than the jail system we have. But when it comes to a covenantal relationship with God, the scriptures place our life in slavery terms. All men are slaves to idols. They may have physical idols they bow down to. They may be Hindus or Buddhists or something like that. Or they may bow down to some human conception of the divine, which isn't real. You don't have to have a physical idol to have an idol. But all humanity is born in slavery to idols. And when man is transformed by faith... He is free from his idols, but he is brought into slavery to God, which is not a negative thing at all. It is something that the apostles celebrate almost always at the beginning of their letters. I remember it was three or four years ago, uh, such a notary as John Piper had an epiphany. You would think that John Piper would not really be having new revelations, but none of us are too old to learn. And he, for the very first time late in life, realized that the term doulos, which the apostles used to talk about themselves, means slave. And he was just absolutely excited. He was almost giddy about it. Uh, In God's economy, it's a good thing, a wonderful thing, a blessed thing to be a slave to God. Man can't be free the way some talk about freedom. He is going to be a slave to somebody. It is really either God or idols, and being a slave to God is a blessed estate. And so Paul attunes them in the present and says, You've got a job to do. What you're doing day by day is you're laboring in love to God. Uh, You love your master, and you are serving the living God. And then in verse 3 and in verse 10, he says, he remembers their, quote, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 10, he says, Uh, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. So he reminds them that having been transformed in the past and serving God in the present, they are to be people whose eyes are to the future. They are the people who will own the future it is impossible for Orthodox Christians to, quote, be on the wrong side of history because the future belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. His coming will establish his kingdom over all creation. He will recreate it. Uh, He will be king. He will uh, direct what is right and true. And uh, those who say that history will be anything different they're going to be highly disappointed. And so Paul reminds them, you know that Christ is returning. You are living in the hope of his return. And in that hope, you are a people who have patience. I am really kind of astounded. I've heard a number of sermons on the spiritual gifts of patience and perseverance, but I'm the one that gave them. I've listened to me preach. Those are not really popular spiritual gifts, but they do show up in all the lists of spiritual gifts, and there is nothing more valuable to a servant of Christ than the gift of patience. He exists in a world that hates his Lord, hates him, Every day, he is a part of the church militant. He wakes up on a battlefield. He is fighting for his Lord. This day will have challenges. Um, The future is that our Lord will redeem everything. But in this time of struggle, what greater gift could you possibly ask from God than the patience to deal with it? Well, Paul tells them you have that. You are serving God in this world. The future is coming when your Lord will reign over all. In that knowledge, how can you not have patience? You will be the servant of the one who has everything in his hand. (laughs) Having set their view of time effectively, Paul calls them to remember how everything began. In verse 4 through 7, we read, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. There's a number of things to unpack here, but the the most significant, I think, and I'm going to begin with it and then I'm going to go through the rest, But the most significant is that phrase, knowing your election by God. It is a matter of Protestant orthodoxy. It is something you will hear said all the time. Um, It's impossible to know who's elect. There's there's no way to really know that. Uh, We know that God has chosen who will be saved but there's no way to know that. They don't have a big E on their head. Uh, You preach the gospel to all men. Well, you do preach the gospel to all men, and there is a certain truth that, yes, when you are proclaiming the gospel, you don't know who you're talking to. They may be an elect. But here the apostle clearly says, we know your election. We don't just think it's, We know that you have been chosen by God. That is astounding. That is Bible. And I've read it to you five times now in three weeks. It is possible to know your election. And Paul says, how did I know it? Well, I knew it from how things began. When I brought to you the gospel... Um, it was very obvious that God was moving and active. In fact, I could feel it because of what God was doing in me. Um, Paul says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. So it wasn't just a philosophy that we considered and debated, but it came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit, and it came in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were. Now, if you're reading the passage and you're hearing Paul say, I know you're elect. I know that God has chosen you and you're saved. You would expect him next to say, now, the power of God fell on you, The Spirit of God moved in you and you had much assurance. But that's not actually what he says. He says, when I was preaching the gospel to you, I could feel the Spirit moving in me. I could feel the power in me. And I had much assurance from this spiritual event. I could tell God was doing that and it was in me. I was a person of the Holy Spirit. I was a person filled with much assurance. I was a person experiencing the power of God, and if that was happening in me, the preacher, how could God not be working out in those listening? And he is, and he goes on to that. In fact, he talks about the fruits that can be seen in them, but he begins with, very interestingly, the fruits he could feel. I felt God move in this room. I felt God move through my preaching. I knew I was in the grip of God. I knew that he was doing a work. Um, It's interesting. There is a a chapter in Billy Graham's autobiography labeled predestination. Uh, If you've never read his autobiography, you really ought to. It's it's an interesting book. And in his chapter where he talks about predestination, he said, I went out on stage again and again and again preaching the gospel in an absolute assurance of hope that God would save people, because it wasn't my power, it wasn't my spirit, it was God's word, God's power, God's spirit, and so I went out knowing God was going to save people, and I preached in that spirit, and for everything you can say about Reverend Graham, it worked pretty good. He was a voice for the gospel of God, and people did come to faith. And he said, I knew that would happen because God predestined people to be saved. It wasn't me, it was him. It was his power, his spirit, and it was going to happen. Paul is effectively saying the same thing. If the gospel were just a matter of a new philosophy, or it were a matter of uh, making yourself better, uh, this kind of language wouldn't apply. But it is a supernatural event when somebody becomes a Christian. It is a transformation from death to life. It is a miracle. It is a work of God. It is a reforming of the soul from the inside out. And Paul could perceive God was doing that. And he also could perceive it from what came out, because he knew it by the fruits as well. He says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word of God in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Akia who believe. When this supernatural event Takes place when conversion takes place, it can't help but change people, and what it changes them into is Christ likeness. Paul says, I knew the spirit was moving in my, my preaching, and you were beginning to act different, you were followers of us. Some translations use the term imitators of us, but we ourselves had a certain locus of what we were doing. We were acting Christ-like and the gospel transformed you into acting Christ-like. I knew that you were chosen. I knew you were converted. I knew because the spirit was pleased to bring fruit out of you. At the big shepherds conference uh, going on, I think just ended at John MacArthur's church, one of the, uh interesting things taking place is there is some church that has basically challenged all the ministers at that conference. Have you all seen this they've They've offered any minister who can come and preach to them that justification is by faith alone, if he can prove it to them, uh, they'll give him like twenty five thousand dollars. I'd take him up on it, but this is a shell game, because is justification, is conversion by faith alone? Well, absolutely. Paul says God has done a work of faith in you. Faith is a change agent. But like every reformer has ever said since the 16th century, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Faith. Works by love. Faith transforms the person. So if I were to go preach at that church, they'd say, Oh no, no, good works have to come from a believer, and I'd not disagree because good works come from a believer, but they come from a believer, they come from faith. And so they just played the shell game and sent me out the door. But the truth is converted people are different people. If you are not transformed by your conversion, Returning to those uh, Puritans, they would say, you are sinning the sin of presumption. The sin of presumption is, you think you're a believer, but you're not. And if transformation isn't happening, you're not. But it's not because you're not doing good deeds, it's because faith does good deeds. And Paul says, you became Christ-like you became Christ-like in severe affliction. I learned early in my ministry that if God was going to, in his mercy, show me who was the real deal, uh, who was really converted in my church, it would happen when the bullets started flying. And they they always did at some point In, in congregational life. There's always going to be attacks of the devil from outside and inside. There's we are the church militant. We're at war. Uh, If you're following Christ, you're going to have a hard time. It's part of it. And what I found out was those who really have faith in Christ. Show you that when you have affliction. When things are rough is when the words either stick or they don't. And I've actually been really kind of surprised at who it was and who it wasn't a a number of times. I can think back to my first ministry uh, when we had our big crisis. The people who really stood on the side of the angels. I didn't expect that from them at all. And it's like, wow, I totally judged you incorrectly. Uh, Paul reminds the Thessalonians this this fruit of being converted. Stayed. When you were under great affliction, that's real fruit. Any fruit can lay around when nothing's trying to barbecue it. Uh, But when the heat comes, when the attack comes, that's when you find out the fruit's real. And Paul says it was real. It was in severe affliction. Even when you were afflicted, you had joy in the Holy Spirit. That's real joy. The entire world is addicted to joy, which they define as pleasure. Um, The Bible puts forward a joy that is so far beyond pleasure that the apostles will have to say things like a joy undefinable. If, If you go into Philippians Paul will tell you that Christian joy is something you actually can't define, but you can experience it. It's overwhelming. It's a gift of being converted, and it doesn't go away. It doesn't go away even when you're struggling. It doesn't go away even when the sky turns dark. It doesn't go away when you have no idea what's happening. There is underneath the everlasting arms, the way Moses puts it, And there is a joy inexpressible that comes out of being held in God's arms. Uh, Christian joy is not dependent on your circumstance. And sometimes Christian joy can even grow in affliction. Now, Paul didn't say that here, but he did put the joy in the affliction. And he said, part of the fruit I could see that you were a converted person was that joy remained. Um, And this was joy in the Holy Spirit. It may be that Christian joy can't be defined because it's coming from the spirit, which can't be contained. You cannot limit the spirit. You cannot define the spirit. You cannot put the spirit in a box. The fruit of the spirit is going to be like the spirit. And Paul reminds them you have that. You had joy in the suffering. That's what happened at the beginning. There was a supernatural event. God chose you. We know you're chosen. That's how things started. Um, and things have been moving from that time. Going back to verse 7, going on to verse 8, we read, So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Converted Christians build the kingdom. God is pleased to use them as his material to cause his kingdom to advance. And... Paul tells these Thessalonians, you have been telling people left and right about Jesus. Uh, Why are you doing that? Well, you do it because it's natural. If you have been brought from death to life, you don't need a class to tell people about that. You've been brought from death to life. It's the most significant event you've ever had. You used to be a walking dead person. Now you are 100% different. You talk. And they've been doing it. And according to what Paul says they've been talking about, they're talking about their own faith and their own experience. It's called the testimony. And Paul says, everywhere we go, we hear about what God did with you. If you go up to Revelation chapter 12, when you have that picture of the devil trying to destroy Christ, and God delivers Christ, and then the devil tries to destroy the church. Uh, Towards the end of that vision, John is told the saints of God overcame the dragon by the blood of Christ, and what else? The word of their testimony. Being converted is its own way of evangelizing. Uh, People can argue with your philosophy. They need to hear your philosophy, by the way. The gospel has a content, and anyone who, ignorant, says, you know, you can preach the gospel without words, you can't do that. That's like feeding the crowd without food. But, nevertheless, and paradoxically, the fact that God has transformed you is the greatest sermon that's ever going to get preached. You are the kingdom in the middle of the unconverted world. The light of the Holy spirit dwells in those who have faith in Christ and no one else. And the very fact that you are so different, so changed, so reworked and you were such a worm as I, to quote the song. Um, that in itself preaches the gospel. Look what God has done for me. In my own spiritual meditation this week, I've been meditating on Psalm 66, and that psalm is an Old Testament version of this. There in Psalm 66, the psalmist calls on the the, the whole world to praise and glorify God for what God can do with men, and then he calls the world to look at what God has done with the chosen people. Uh, He brought us through the Red Sea. He delivered us from Pharaoh. He kept us alive. He brought us into a promised land. Come look what God has done for the sons of men, says the psalm. Uh, Because we are sons of men, converted elect people are no different, in essence, than any other people. Come look and see what God does with people when you see what he does with us. And praise God. Well, the Thessalonians have effectively been doing that. They have been showing the world what God does with people. And in their location, there have been lots of people who hate what God does with people, and they have been being persecuted. But all throughout the world, there have been other people going, wow, isn't it amazing what God does with people? And that has been a primary witness. And you just don't have converted people and the kingdom not get built. The kingdom is built by living people. And Paul reminds them, whatever afflictions you may be under, whatever difficulties, whatever struggles, you can look and see God has been building the kingdom. He also reminds them of the reality of Jesus. I am sometimes disturbed at how we often talk about God, but kind of as a concept, not really as a living reality. We do talk philosophically and we talk systematically, and theres there's a, a place for all of that. but the only legitimate place for that is realizing you're talking right in front of somebody you're talking about. Here. Paul, at the end of this chapter, reminds them, you're waiting for Jesus risen from the dead. So he is as alive as any man. He is actually more alive than any man. He is a living reality. He is alive. He is coming. Uh, He is going to be Lord over all creation. He is currently present, uh, and he's doing something right now. He's involved in an action And that action is, quote, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It is not that he is going to deliver us. It is he is in the process of delivering us right now. You see, worldlings think that if we Christians are right, judgment will come on judgment day. And they're really kind of afraid of that. They don't admit that. But. Judgment is someday coming, and it's not now, and I'm going to party now because I'm not judgment. The scripture says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. It's being revealed right this minute. The wrath of God is building up to judgment day. It will come to a crescendo on judgment day. Those who are not converted, those who don't have faith, it's going to be terrible But the wrath of God is happening right now. If you are outside of God right now, you are experiencing the wrath of God right now. But Paul reminds them the Lord Christ is doing something right now. This very moment, he is delivering us from the wrath to come. He is a shield blocking that wrath. The Father's anger, righteous anger at sin is not pouring through our lives, even if we are in great affliction. We are delivered from God's wrath, and Jesus is doing it right now. He is alive and doing it. And it is he who has made Christians. If you look at the very beginning of our chapter, the first verse of content is verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. It's a simple greeting. Uh, Most people just kind of uh, run over it. But Paul says, I'm thankful to God for doing something. Uh, I'm thankful to God for you. Where do Christians come from? They... They come from supernatural conversion. They come from a miracle. Who does miracles? It ain't me, and it ain't Benny Hinn. Miracles come from God's hand. So if there is any Christian in your life at all, that person is literally a gift of God to you. It also means that if you are a Christian and in somebody's life, you are a gift of God to them. So if somebody looks you in the eye and says, do you think you're a gift of God? Say, yeah, because you are. Uh, God creates believers. Nobody believes unless God transforms them. And Paul says, I thank God for all of you because God transformed you. I know your election, brother, because look at the fruits. Look at what has happened. I know that you have come from God's hand. And I am thankful for all of you, every single one of you. You have to remember that every congregation that you meet in the New Testament is like every congregation you have ever met in real life. It's made up of different people with very different gifts and outlooks. And in the flesh, not everybody who is part of your church are you going to really like. That's kind of part of it. But if there is anyone who is created again in Christ at all, God literally created them in Christ and gave them to you. And Paul looks over the entirety of the Thessalonian congregation and says, I am thankful for all of you because God is doing this. God is working. He has done what my friend Bill would have done. He has reminded them who they are and whose they are. They are a converted Christian. They are given every gift and grace in Christ, and they belong to Christ who is coming. Whatever else must be dealt with in the letter, that is an amazing foundation. And it is true of every converted person.